So just before we start, I don't know if you've noticed, uh, I've adopted a new brother. Uh, his name is Benjamin, as you can see here. Uh, tried to get the hair uh, uh, close to the family's DNA, but didn't work very well. So Benjamin is uh, joining me. Actually, I'm joining Benjamin. Uh, Benjamin will run season two. Uh, he's also our query processing tech lead based in Munich, uh, building and scaling the office there. Um, I've met Benjamin two, three years now. How, how, how long ago, Benji? Probably like two. Two years ago, he got in touch. He was an intern thinking about his PhD in Munich University. And, and, and it's one thing led to another. And here we are today with you um, talking about Amazing. data. So I'm really looking forward. And with that, Benji, it's all yours. Awesome. So, so you're introducing me and I'll just go on uh, and introduce our guest, uh, Vijay. Yeah, thank, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, so Vijay is the CNO uh, and founder of StatSig. Um, and he founded StatSig in February 2021, uh, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, they're based in Bellevue, Washington. Uh, their original office was in Kirkland, uh, where Firebolt also has an engineering office. Um, and Statsic is building a product observability platform, uh, and we'll talk more about that later. Uh, basically, it makes it super easy to manage feature flags and experimentation. Um, and yeah, we're, we're excited to have you. Um, so they raised a Series A in August 2021, uh, and now in April of this year, a 42 million Series B, uh, led by Sequoia and Madrona. Um, so that's awesome. Um, yeah, and VJ didn't start out uh, as a startup founder. Uh, he started out in big tech, actually. So he spent his first 10 years uh, at Microsoft doing a variety of different things um, and then joined Facebook in 2011, uh, where he stayed for another decade. Uh, and there he led Facebook video and gaming uh, and was also the site lead for Facebook Seattle. So he scaled the site there from uh, just a handful to more than 5,000 engineers, which is pretty impressive. Yeah. So one out of those 5,000 used uh, to work for you. He works for Firebolt now. Ooh. And we got great, great feedback. So, so we're happy <laughs> and excited. I love it. I love it. <laughs> awesome. Um, perfect. So, Vijay, like, do you want to give a like, two minute high level overview about yourself, about what Statsig is doing? Uh, before we dive into some of the nitty-gritty details. Absolutely. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Uh, I'm honored to be here on the first episode of Season 2. Uh, excited uh, excited, excited to be here and chatting with you both. Um, yeah, so, you know, uh, Benjamin, you covered uh, the history a little bit. Um, I started Statsig about 20 months ago, um, and this is after spending 10 years at Facebook. So I joined Facebook in 2011 when Facebook was still considered a startup, a small startup. And then, um, you know, obviously the company grew uh, both uh, globally as well as in Seattle. So I spent um, uh, my time also growing the Seattle offices um, from, like you said, a handful of folks to, uh, I think when I left, about 6,500 people. Um, and one of the things that um, struck me as I moved uh, from Microsoft to Facebook, um, I was always an engineer. So I, I grew up and learned uh, programming and wanted to be an engineer. Uh, and I spent 10 years at Microsoft as an engineer. And um, during this 10, time, 10 years, it's kind of like formative when you see like the software processes evolved. Um, and it went from like, uh, this shrink box software sits on that sits on Best Buy shelves to you know shipping every single day 
um, and then eventually like continuously shipping code. Um, those are the things that I learned um, firsthand at Facebook. And uh, I was fascinated by that whole concept of like, you know, how you decouple feature launches from code launches uh, and the tools that were associated with it, the tools that kept, you know, this chaos from getting out of control. Um, and, and also like, you know, started understanding like how you measure the impact of every single feature you ship and then uh, throw away code that doesn't work because just because you thought it would work, it doesn't mean it would. Uh, and then measuring every single uh, change actually gives you a lot of uh, insights, a lot of humility, I think. Um, and then also a lot of cultural changes. And so those are, those are like definitely resonated very strongly to me um, to the point where I said like, okay, this is important. Uh, that we should go build a company around uh, these set of tools. Um, and that's why in February 2021, I left Facebook and started Statsig. Um, I brought with me a few folks um, and joined and uh, and built the tools. Uh, and then now the company is going strong. We have now 52 people as of yesterday. So uh, pretty exciting growth. How was it switching from this uh, huge, huge organization, engineering organization to a startup? that just now got to 52 people. How does it feel? It's crazy. <laughs> you know, um, going into a startup, I had, uh, I thought I knew some things, but then over time I realized I had absolutely no idea what I was doing. Um, it's, it's like really uh, jumping off a cliff um, with not a parachute, but just instructions to assemble a parachute. And then you have to figure it all out before it, you land. Um, and that's kind of like how it feels. It's, it's um, uh, you know, or managing an org of like um, thousands of folks is is very different skill than um, building a startup from scratch, hiring the first person, the first engineer, the first product manager, first designer, uh, and then getting a product out. Uh, it's kind of like you know when you're when you're building early days you're building in a vacuum you kind of like have this vision you have this you 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 believe in this thing and then you go build um and then you put it out you're really vulnerable right so you build out your product and you put it out for somebody to come and like take a look at it um and you hope somebody would like it and then uh will use it give some feedback and then for six months, you sit there and like nobody is touching your product and you're like wondering, oh, what what have I done? <laughs> I made the worst decision of my life. Um, but then slowly, uh, the traction happens. Slowly, people like starting to notice and then they like, oh, this is, this is actually a pretty useful product. Um, and then you go from like this one stage to another stage where people are now uh, even trying out your product for free. And then eventually they want to actually use it. And then eventually they want to actually pay for it. The software, um, and then eventually they love the product, and then they actually want to like evangelize the product. So you go through these stages, um, and each of these stages, you're constantly like questioning yourself and questioning your decisions. It is a it is a and fascinating journey that all startup founders go through. And uh, this is my you know, like you said, I spend all my life in large companies where you don't have to worry about this kind of stuff. And then when you throw it into a startup, you every every little thing matters. So yeah, it is. It's been a fun journey, very very much a learning journey, um, very much um, humbling, humbling just to like look around and see how many people that have gone through the same journey as me before and and been successful. And you just started. There's yeah. a long journey ahead. Yeah, it is. It I, is. Know. <laughs> I know. I know. 
Yeah, yeah, definitely. And so the, leaving 20 and months. you picked great timing and you picked great timing as well, because I think kind of uh, <laughs> raising round B, like perfect, 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 perfect. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. Uh, those are crazy times building startups. It's always crazy building startups, but those times are especially crazy. Um, yeah. Benjamin is young, so everything is new and, uh, you know, but we've been there through previous uh, recessions and, and it's always surprising how different each time it is yeah. uh, but I wouldn't replace it for anything and and really we, we we look forward to hear more about what you're building yeah thanks awesome so let's dive right into that so maybe for our listeners who weren't exposed to I don't know a b testing experimentation uh, all those things yet do you want to give like the kind of two minute pitch of why this matters and what it actually is yeah yeah uh, so the One of the most important things is when when you're building a product, you have a, a hypothesis and you think that something that you're building is going to be beneficial for your users or your customers or for your business. Um, and that hypothesis is baked into every single feature that you're building. And the idea that we build those things out and then ship it to people um, without really like instrumenting or measuring whether the, that particular belief is actually true or not, um, is no longer valid. It's no longer okay. Um, and uh, at Facebook, I, I, I remember this where 80% of the code that you write or the products or the features that you build don't work on first try, um, which means that you have to like go back to the drawing board, uh, iterate on the product until it works, um, or sometimes throw away your idea and it's okay because you can't be right all the time. Um, but knowing which 80% is not working, which 20% is working is, is the hard part. So that, you know, just understanding and measuring uh, the impact of the changes that you're making uh, to your product, to your users, to your customers uh, is extremely important. So the stage number one is always about measuring, measuring things, measuring things that you build and ship uh, to people. Stage number two is like, okay, well, take, taking the measurement back and then actually addressing some, some of these causal Inferences like, okay, well, why did the metrics do what they're doing? Uh, can we attribute it to the changes that we made? And then make the decision, okay, well, what do we need to do in order to like, you know, whether uh, double down on it because it's doing really well or wind it down because it's not doing well. And so those are the kinds of tools that people need access to in order to be able to make the, the right decisions on the product on a daily basis. The state of the art in the industry currently today about experimentation is still A-B testing. And A-B testing is like, a, a, it's, a, it's the gold standard for causal inference. However, it's very, very uh, time-consuming and manually, uh, there's a lot of overhead because you have to first come up with a hypothesis, you have to build the variance and then ship out the variance. And then you have to allocate the samples, isolate the experiment, run it. Uh, for however long it takes for statistical significance, maybe two weeks, maybe three weeks. And then you have your data science team go back and look at and analyze all of these results. And this whole process takes a long time. And so most people don't run that many experiments. They pick some of these features that are really, really important. And then they, they run it through the A-B testing experimentation uh, pipeline. The rest of the features just go out uh, untested. So this is, um, this is where I think like companies like Facebook, Uber, um, Uh, Airbnb um, and even LinkedIn, some of these companies have like sophisticated tools that basically take every single code change you're making, feature change you're making, and then um, have tools that'll automatically run these A-B testing and then will give you back the results of like, you know, the impact of those changes, thereby 
you don't have to do the, you know, the previously mentioned like long process of A-B testing. You kind of like get these results on a, on a daily basis and then you make decisions, which which will be much better decisions than before. And that's the that's what, you know, we're trying to build with stat segments, kind of like where we're going with this product observability. Gotcha. Uh, I mean, you have a background, right? In like gaming at Facebook, for example, do you have like one or two grippy examples of things where like this kind of mattered or where these types of experiments kind of led to interesting insights? Oh, a lot of them. Um, <clears throat> like I say, one of the key metrics that I uh, share is like you know, 80% of the code or 80% of the features that we we think we um, are going to be beneficial are not. And so just going back to the drawing board is a, is a, is a regular thing and it's okay. And, you know, that way people don't get attached to the code they write. Um, so I'll give you one anecdote. So in video specifically, um, we have run plenty of experiments. Um, and the general belief is that the higher the quality of video that you're able to provide, the more consumption that will happen, because obviously people like higher quality videos. And so, you know, you know, at Facebook, we built um, this automatic bitrate detection um, code, which basically like uh, constantly analyzes your, your network uh, stability, last mile uh, bandwidth, and all of that stuff to be able to like, okay, well, we're going to give you the best possible bitrate uh, for the connection that you have. And in so far, that's been like, you know, experimented and proven. And we continue to like, you know, increase and increase and increase. Like the encoding have gone up from like a 480p to 720p to 1080p and then eventually 4K. Um, and the belief is like, yes, that is always good. And then um, in 2020, the, uh, the pandemic hit. And when most people stayed home, um, the media consumption uh, grew pretty heavily, like, you know, all, almost um, over a course of a month, it doubled and tripled. And some of the backbones, like the carriers um, and the ISPs, uh, they couldn't um, basically handle the load. And so there, are, there are some of these folks reached out to Facebook and like, hey, could you help? Because you know a lot of the traffic that is going out is going to Facebook, and a lot of it for is for video. Um, could you throttle these um, for us? And we were like, oh my goodness! So like, if we start throttling, that's actually going to reduce the consumption. That's actually going to like leave people not feeling great about the quality and the experience. Uh, but we also understand that this is kind of like, you know, not, you know, normal terms. It's kind of like, you know, crazy, crazy uh, times that we're dealing with. So we went ahead and started like, you know, tweaking our ABR algorithm to like actually give, um, you know, a couple clicks lower uh, bitrate than what was actually possible to give. I always what? knew this 4K isn't a real 4K when I saw it. <laughs> <laughs> Something no, no. felt fishy there. <laughs> no, it, it, it's we actually like you know showed that we're dropping, and then if people wanted to like pick 4K, they could go ahead and pick you know the higher bandwidth. It's just the automatic uh, default that we pick, and when we change the default. You know, normally, you know, obviously we experiment with everything, right? So this is like one of those things where when we change the defaults, we were actually like looking at the metrics that were coming in. We were shocked because the usage actually went up. Um, people were using video a lot more and consuming video a lot more with the lower bitrate. And, uh, you know, obviously this was surprising. This was new. It's like, okay, well, we were only known because we ran these experiments for every single change we make. Um, and then we went back and we looked and we did some case studies and we talked to uh, folks. Uh, and then later on, we understood that there's a, um, you know, there's a segment of population that is very bandwidth bandwidth um, sensitive, 
uh, and they have, you know, whether they're throttled or whether they're limited bandwidth uh, and so on, where uh, generally uh, they get constrained by how much uh, per day that they can use. And so now all of a sudden, a whole batch of people were now able to use uh, or consume more video than they did before. Um, and then there's a whole segment of population that were on the phone that are kind of like, you know, old, outdated phones where uh, 4K or 1080p doesn't actually make a difference. And so, you know, trying to push more and more bitrate was actually not necessary. So there's a set of learning that we had um, that was um, very interesting. Uh, we wouldn't have had those learnings if not for uh, this kind of like experimentation, constant uh, experimentation. Anyways, it was pretty eye-opening for me as I was like, you know, running the video org. Right. I mean, that's that's pretty interesting, right? Because like when I looked at this first and I was like, oh, kind of maybe this is about, I don't know, the color of like your pay now button on the shopping cart. Uh, but these are really deep, like algorithmic kind of like core parts of your infrastructure uh, to which you then apply those experiments. Uh, so that's, yeah, like that's kind of cool to see. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, a lot of people, when they think about A-B testing, you're, you're naturally gravitated towards like, oh, well, let's change the, the text of the button or the color of the button or change the layout of, you know, where things go in order to like get more conversion. I mean, I think those are also valid A-B tests, but those are also like very, um, they're kind of like more marketing centric and more um, shallow um, because the, your metrics that you're trying to move are directly correlated to the product changes. Whereas when you touch like, okay, well, I'm going to change um, the parsing library that app that's like in the back end, and then like I want to see if that increases any latency on like the large segment population, especially at scale. You know, those are the kinds of things that um, that you you actually care about when you're when you're like modifying product and you want to verify that there are no uh, obviously like where you want to verify that it's actually doing what you expect to do. And then secondarily, you want to verify that there are no uh, extreme side effects. You know, sometimes you don't know what's going to happen when you actually make these changes. So monitoring those things are important. So let's talk a bit about like what powers actually infrastructure like this. So the actual like experimentation infrastructure. Um, the first question I would have is, so say I want to run this experiment now, right? Like I'm an IC at a company, I have this type of experimentation software um, and now I'm saying, okay, like my video encoding algorithm, I want to change that and see if X, Y, Z increases. Uh, like, do I have to be the one formulating the hypothesis? Like, do I have to be the one saying, oh, I changed the thing and I think X, Y, Z might increase? Or is it like there's some core metric someone else from the product team defined and then each experiment is actually tested against these same core metrics? How does it work? Yeah. So generally what you want to be um, keeping track of is like there are some business critical metrics. You don't want to drop those business critical metrics. You want to make sure that they are healthy uh, for across all of the product changes that you're making. And then there are all these metrics that you're kind of like um, your so the primary metrics that you expect to change, expect to move. You know, okay, well, if I'm changing my video encoding algorithm, um, I expect more video watches to happen or more time spent on videos to happen. And then perhaps even like lesser lag or lesser um, uh, interruptions in the video because of bandwidth issues. So those are the kinds of things that you would normally be watching as a direct result of the change you're making. Um, so those are, I think those are like two separate um, uh, set of metrics that you should be watching. And one of them is like, you know, probably picked by 
your company level, um, you know, product or um, growth leader. Um, so you kind of like an, okay, well, I don't want to ever drop my DAU or engagement or retention or, you know, obviously revenue and things like that. Um, and then the other one is generally like determined by the product team that is making product changes very close to those metrics. Um, and yeah, I think both are extremely important. And then generally, like, you know, more sophisticated tools, um, like stats, like one of the things that we provide is kind of like guardrails. So you can basically specify, like, um, if there, if if this particular metric, say my DAU metric drops by below 3%, um, then I want a, an alert to fire and people to be notified. And so anytime anybody is changing any product, and you want, if, if that drops the metric by 3%, you want to be aware of that. And you want to be able to, like, get... Uh, right to the problem of like, well, what's, what's happening. And obviously you can also like, you know, have these trade-off conversations, whether it is worth it or not, but that's up to you. What actually powers these things in the background, right? Like there must be some pretty sophisticated statistics or something going on. And like one thing I just thought about, like what about correlation in experiments, for example, right? So, and if I on my team am changing the, I don't know, video encoding, another team is changing how much video gets buffered. And in the end, like we're, dropping this kind of into production at the same time, uh, like somehow you have to figure out which change actually changes the kind of core metrics you're interested in. Yeah, no, this is a um, very good question. So obviously there's a lot of teams that are changing a lot of things. Um, so there, one of the things, obviously you would not launch every uh, product that you're making 100% to the user. So you kind of like are splitting the audience into uh, smaller portions and rolling it out. Typically, we use this exponential rollout model where you take uh, a new feature, you roll it out to 1% of people, and then see how it affects the metrics, and then 2%, 5, 10, and then 20, 50, 100. So that's kind of like the sequence that you normally follow through and making sure that every stage, you're not um, dropping any critical metric uh, more than necessary. Um, and when multiple people are doing those, the, the salt or the randomization for each of these rollouts is different. And so different sets of population will get these different sets of uh, features. There will be some intersection and the rest of them are getting their unique experiences. Um, and that's kind of like how our system um, determines like how to attribute a metric change back to uh, the, the actual feature change. And that's why we also have error bars in our confidence intervals. And then you'll be able to like, you know, once the error bars are within statistical significance, then we turn them into either green or red, depending on if it's positive or negative. And so that, that kind of like, you know, have our stats engine determine uh, the causal inference back to the, the features. Now, obviously there are lots of things that you could um, also get um employ the tools to validate some of these. So if you if you have multiple features that are highly interactive in nature, so, okay, I'm changing um, something in the product that are very closely tied to each other, uh, then what you do is you have isolated experiments. So you kind of like create a layer, which is called a uh, universe, other, in other words. And then you actually say like, I'm going to allocate 25% of this universe or layer to this particular experiment and another 25% to this experiment. And so you kind of like go like that and that way, uh, no single user will be getting uh, two different experiences. They'll actually be like isolated and getting one particular experiment uh, that they work on. And that way you can also like increase your confidence interval. Um, sorry, like uh, make the confidence interval better. She was decreasing the confidence interval at the same time. Uh, also like attributed really clearly, okay, well, this experiment is doing uh, these things to my metric. And so those are the kinds of tools that are available. 
Now, there's also something that you mentioned, which is like, okay, what well, if I launch these two things at the same time, what happens? Um, so the interaction effects are kind of like cumulative impact of a multiple sets of features. So we have something called holdouts. So long-term holdouts, uh, which are able to like actually measure the cumulative impact of multiple sets of features that you're launching over a course of time. Uh, we use this extensively. So basically what that means is like at the beginning of a quarter or the beginning of a, a half, you... Uh, you specify one or 2% of the population that are kind of like in the holdout group. Uh, and then you launch a whole set of features and then you go back and analyze, okay, well, compare all of the metrics to these one or 2% of the people that have been held out from these features. That kind of gives you the cumulative impact. So you have all of these tools at your disposal to get all of that information. How do you manage like the semantic uh, layer of all of that? Like, cause it gets so complicated. Like I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an engineer anymore, unfortunately. But uh, observability to me always seemed like uh, there's, it's easy to, to kind of collect the events, but it's impossible to connect those events to kind of a semantic uh, model where you can actually drive the business based on that. And having so many cloud native companies uh, driving their business through their data, through their product, it seems like those kind of platforms are really not just about observability anymore, right? It's kind of really about driving your business. And so... Is there a standardized way to do it? Is there a kind of in the industry? Is there a shift towards some, a semantic, like a DBT for observability or something that is will make engineers' life easier to communicate on on insight? Yeah, that's that's basically what we're trying to build, which is you know the sophistication is actually in the stats engine, um, and that should not like you know make your product building process any more complicated than it already is. And so the idea behind the, you know, everything that we're building is like engineers should still be building features. And you know, when you decorate a feature with a feature flag, we then take care of like the attribution, the analysis, um, and then also like try to do it as real time as possible because, you know, you want to get to diagnostics as quickly as possible. You don't want to like put out something that is broken experience for your users for longer than is necessary and then kind of like catch that as quickly as possible and then fix those things. So yeah, so uh, while it seems like, okay, there's lots of stuff that is happening, all of that is, um, is encapsulated by the complexity of the stats engine, but there is also a layer of like, okay, well, if you make it complicated for people to understand what's really happening, then you're then you've lost. You kind of like have not actually achieved anything. So how do you take all of that data and simplify it? So you know, some of the visualization um, innovation that we're doing is to like, okay, how do you make you know engineers, product managers, even designers uh, be able to understand the insights uh, easily? However. When a data scientist wants to come in and you know go and dig into the code, you want to have you want to have this like progressive disclosure of complexity. You kind of like want to actually have uh, the ability to dive into the data if somebody is uh, inclined to do so. Um, and so yeah, so that's the challenge, right? The tooling uh, should make it extremely easy for everyone, uh, but at the same time not block you from getting into the details. Um, and that's that's precisely what we're building. And product observability is like you know if you think about it as an extension of like. I, I always say tools uh, in the data observability space have become so sophisticated. Uh, and then if you look in the ops observability, kind of like Datadog or so, you kind of like every, in real time, you'll know when one server is misbehaving among a, a forest of like a thousand servers or 10,000 servers, right? In real time. 
And that's pretty amazing. So systems are, have gotten so much more sophisticated um, than what I remember like 10, 20 years ago. And then when you talk to product folks, you, you still are kind of like in the, oh yeah, we're going to launch V2 uh, three weeks from now. And then when V2 launches, uh, we're going to like, you know, wait for three weeks for our product adoption to happen. And then we're going to have analytics, uh, our data scientists go and look at the analytics and then have some way of like correlating, um, well, are the metrics going up after the feature launch or are the product launch uh, are they going down? Why are they doing those things? So, but you know, you see how slow and- And it's done manually outside of the system. And it, so it takes your alpha feature eight months to go into beta while yeah. uh, trying out, uh, 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 while trying to make observability work. Yeah. Um, I yeah, think it's, it's amazing. I think the next step is is really kind of getting observability to to be impactful. Uh, yeah, it's always exactly. been a black box for engineers to do their stuff, yeah. and seeing observability moving away from just you know helping engineers do their day job to really driving your business. I think it's a uh, it's a huge step forward, and it's also you know if you think engineering, the more data they deal with the more data that's being impactful, like using those kind of tools becomes not just optional anymore. It's really changing oh, yeah. how you build products. And, and we've seen that firsthand at Firebolt, by the way, how yeah. it affects. This is not kind of a hacky, like it starts with, okay, let's put a feature flag, but it quickly turns into, into kind of a way to drive your engineering culture, as yep. you've mentioned at the beginning. So amazing stuff. And now tell us like how complicated is it behind like, Building observability is the hardest part, right? I mean, it's data-driven, it's real-time, it's metadata is actually changing, unlike yeah. your product, which makes it even more uh, challenging. Yeah. Can you share a bit with us, kind of, how does it work? How do you do it? So, you know, obviously the credit goes to the data science and the infrastructure engineers that we have at Statsing. These guys are pretty amazing. Um, so the I'll, I'll give you the overview of like, you know, how we ingest the data and kind of like the infrastructure that we rely on. Um, and then the details of that, you know, is actually beyond me. Um, so let's uh, let's talk about like, you know, we have a set of SDKs that help you um, get started relatively quickly. Now, obviously building these SDKs is also uh, a pretty interesting um, problem because, you know, as an engineer, you're excited, like, okay, well, there's all these technologies. It's like iOS and Android and React and React Native. And so you got to build SDKs in every single uh, technology because people have all of those out there. And this matrix continues to grow, especially if you have like a new feature, you have to test it across, like we have 25 SDKs, I think. So 25 SDKs. The ecosystem uh, team is going crazy. Yeah. Oh yeah, we have this on this whiteboard. I'm not kidding. There's like this huge matrix uh, where people draw like, okay, well, have I uh, implemented this feature in this SDK? And then like, you know, the matrix continues to grow. So so that's fascinating. This is step number one. And then once the, the SDKs are integrated, they're obviously like collecting um, event data and then sending it back to our servers. On the server, um, we have um, a queuing system called Event Hub. So basically the Event Hub is like the first stage that actually acquires all of these events and queues them so, so we don't lose a sequence. Um, and then we have actually a redundant system as well. So once the Event Hub is receiving all of these things, they actually throw it into a, a file system. It's like a, a big, large file system so that if anything happens to the Event Hub, so we can go back to the data um, that's sitting on the file system and replay it when necessary. DJ, if I can interrupt, like, can we take a step back maybe like what is an event 
actually kind of in this world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. So uh, it, an event could be as granular as like somebody purchased uh, a product in an e-commerce setup or someone um, uh, added to cart and again in an e-commerce setup. In a gaming setup, somebody reached a new level uh, or, you know, you know, achieved an accomplishment or uh, achievement, uh, you know, and then in a fintech scenario, someone... Uh, used a credit card. Uh, and so those are all kind of like events. And those are the ones that we kind of like um, be able to like gather and uh, turn them into metrics, really. So imagine if you have a purchase event and that purchase event happens to have a value, which is actually the dollar amount, uh, then you can aggregate a sum of all that stuff and then you can see revenue as a metric. And now you can verify, okay, if, if I'm making all of these product changes, is it changing my revenue up or down? And that's right. how so we correlate. These events are then basically annotated with the kind of com- specific feature flag configuration uh, of that customer or user at that time. Or- no, no, no. Actually, um, so the events only have uh, user ID information. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on the other side, where when we actually deliver the features, you ask for for this user ID, which features should we show? So that's oh, the gotcha. correlation. The join so is actually happening on user ID. Background. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nice. So that's I love why joins we... as someone building database systems. <laughs> oh, oh. Uh, I love it too because that actually <laughs> there's always a join, Benjamin. Always, always a join. Wow. Always. <laughs> Everywhere. But the join is actually powerful because it simplifies um, the two kind of like responsibilities. So if I'm a feature builder, if I'm an engineer, I only have to care about like, okay, you know, which feature flag am I using? I don't have to worry about like all the metrics and annotating the metrics and we do that for you. And so uh, so it's part of like actually simplifying how we use the system. So once the events are in, uh, in our backend, uh, then we throw it into a data lake. And so the data lake is where we do deduping because, you know, sometimes when users are, especially like in React setups, kind of like, you know, con- constant rendering, you kind of like have multiple events generated at the same time. And so you want to like dedupe and, you know, do some sanit- sanitation of the data and stuff like that. And so we do all of that on the data lake side of things. Then what happens every hour um, we have this gigantic Databricks job. Uh, this Databricks job is where all of the, you know, the statistical correlation, causation, you know, all of the analysis is all uh, encoded in, in Python. They basically spin off um, thousands of servers to go uh, orchestrate um, all the analysis. And then out comes basically a, a set of analytics. And those analytics go back to our data warehouse. And then we, where we actually like break it down into lots and lots of like pre-computed metrics so that when you actually go to our um, console, you'll be able to like get these things in real time. So you don't have to like recompute anything. So the UI is extremely responsive. So you can click around and actually like have things pop up very fast uh, because that experience is important. Otherwise, if you're sitting for even like one minute uh, for each, <clears throat> for every of these query, every one of these queries to run, then you kind of like lose the, the whole fluidity. Uh, and so we take a lot of care about like making sure that those things are working as quickly as possible. Cool. So this kind of, right, you have these hourly batch processes like running, which means say I launched something and then this experiment starts uh, after what, like an hour or two hours, I'll start seeing some, some data on my experiment. What if something goes like terribly wrong, right? So I, like 
the, the, the worst thing ever and it just breaks uh, breaks everything. Is the safety then that it's only like with 1% of my customers and so these couple of hours don't hurt a lot whereas they're like a kind of fail safe uh, or trapped or if things go terribly wrong. Yeah. Benjamin, no. you want them to fix your bugs as well? I mean, come on. Sorry. <laughs> don't stretch it. Don't stretch it too far. <laughs> Sorry, go ahead. No. no, I think that's the important... I think you, you're, you're hitting the nail because um, it's important to roll out uh, slowly in stages. So typically, we see most customers when, when they create a feature flag, it's open to only employees. Uh, and so there's usually this dog fooding process. If something is terribly wrong, you catch it with just employees before it even hits your customers or users. Um, and then what you do is you, you roll it out to, you know, sometimes some customers have these early adopters that are kind of like a little bit more okay to get some beta experiences and they're, they're okay to tolerate some of these things that are broken. And so you turn it on uh, to the next ring and which will be the early adopters. And then obviously you're monitoring all these metrics. Sometimes you get a little bit of scale, which is good. Um, so it's stress testing your product. And so uh, you, if something is broken, you pause the rollout, you go back and fix it. Then the next stage is like, okay, well, now I'm going to open it up to 1% of the general public or general, you can pick a country like, okay, I'm going to open it up only to uh, United States. Um, sometimes people do that because they don't want to invest in localization uh, and they want to like test it in English speaking countries first before everything works, then you invest in localization. And so you kind of like roll it up to 1% and see how things are uh, you know, operating. The good thing about this is like, you know, if something is broken, you catch it within an hour. So which is which, you know, as real time as we can get. Um, and so then you're kind of like going back and like fixing things versus like waiting and waiting for your customers to tell you or some support channel, uh, file a ticket, you know, things like that. So those are those are like, I think, why it's extremely important to like catch these early and fix them. Right. And one interesting thing is like, you know, because I'll, I'll add this here too. A lot of people think that, oh, you need lots of samples in order to like even catch these things. But, you know, if something is broken, you don't need thousands of samples. You need like 10 samples to tell you like, oh my gosh, the, this particular metric is dropping. So let's go figure out what's going on. About what volumes of data are we actually talking here? Uh, so like how much, how much data are you processing every day? Oh my gosh, terabytes. Um, there, so, and we have, about 15 to 20 billion events every single day, um, give or take, based on like, you know, how, you know, uh, one of our large customers ran a, a sale uh, for three days. And then what happened was like, you know, their volume tripled uh, for a week. And, you know, our system is able to scale and adopt, you know, take care of that. But uh, give or take 15 to 20 billion, and it's been growing, like, you know, um, just uh, you know, eight months ago, we had a million or so events a day, and now we're talking 20 billion events. Um, and those things are raw events, right? And so the, the, the job that we need to do is to quickly dedupe and reduce that as much as possible before we, like, you know, toss it over to, like, the, the Databricks jobs. But the, the Benjamin, is, this is a huge insert into GroupBy, by the way. Nice. <laughs> Translating to relational algebra, insert into ah, now I understand. Billions, billions yeah. of unique <laughs> events. I always um, need those relational algebra trees to understand what's going on. <laughs> that's why I'm here. Yeah, and then what happens after that is like you know we actually store all the raw events for when you know our customers need, and then they want to be able to like you know go download this thing. And when you download, you get this like you know. Uh, 
a terabyte file, which is pretty crazy. You know, it takes, you know, days to even download. So then we all, obviously we offer like several ways to like slice and dice filter and like, so you can get your data as quickly as possible, but we store all of that stuff. And so uh, we're not quite at the petabyte yet, but we're quickly approaching that. Awesome. So what are actually the scalability limits on those pipelines? Like what's harder basically like growing to 10 X more customers or a single customer of like 10 X the size? Is it similar? Is it very different? Uh, it is how very, is that looking? Yeah, it is very different. I think like, you know, 10 X customers is actually easier um, than one customer growing 10 X, uh, especially if that customer is extremely large uh, because what happens is like the joins and the analysis that we do are within the same customer's data. We, we actually like have separation of data, which means the, these things take much longer uh, and require a lot more orchestration. Um, and so a lot of times it's interesting. Some of these things that I never thought will run into, we are running into. So for example, one of the things um when the Databricks job runs, it, it spawns out like thousands or thousands or so uh, spot instances, spot VMs that then actually go and you know do the actual heavy lifting. And then to communicate with each of these spot instances, you need you know local IP addresses, and you run out of IP address allocation. I'm like I like really like I never thought that there, there, you would actually run out of those kind of things. And apparently, those are resources. And then you're like, okay, well, how are we going to solve this problem? Um, and then you have to like start thinking about, okay, well, IPv6. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much, right? Um, so um, it is fascinating um, when you're running some of these jobs at scale with so much data, even like the choice of like how we store the data, what kind of databases we use um, and how we run uh, these orchestrations. It's like it's been affected and it's actually like evolving too. So the, obviously we didn't foresee all of this stuff. So we built something that worked six months ago and then you throw it all away and then you rebuild based on like what we know now. And I am pretty sure six months from now, we'll probably throw all of what we have right now and then rebuild something for whatever scale that we will be dealing with because those are the times we're actually going to identify some new problem that we haven't even thought about. Right. So what's, for example, like now on your current stack, an experience where you're saying, wow, we would really like to provide this, but it's kind of something we just can't do uh, on the architecture we have. Well, I mean, wouldn't it be awesome if we're able to give you more real time than one hour? Um, so imagine if we're able to give you like in, in minutes, five minutes, 10 minutes, um, that would be amazing. Uh, and currently our, you know, our systems, our architecture, our expense, the cost of infrastructure is prohibitive enough that we cannot provide that. So we have to like, you know, work with an hour um, uh, as real time as we could get at this point. But I would love to like keep pushing that limit as much as we can, uh, because I think we've gone from like many, many weeks to an hour, which is a pretty huge step forward, but we're not going to stop there. Awesome. Uh, I smell text. subscriptions. I smell subscriptions coming uh coming along <laughs> soon. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I think like, you know, um, especially as we go into this web three world, I'm I'm assuming that that's gonna become a, a real time um an important issue. So uh so we will have to like keep investing. To wrap up the conversation about your internal data stack, uh I assume you guys are dog fooding basically, so that you're also using static internally. To, to try out uh, the, the things you are launching. Uh, do you want to quickly talk about that maybe? 
oh yeah, everything we do is behind the feature flag. So we don't ever throw out any code that, you know, that is even a little bit sensitive or a little bit, um, uh, we, we, we want to like, you know, uh, validate it. And so we throw everything behind a feature flag. And we, obviously that gives us the separation of like when we can roll out a feature. Um, sometimes we do an announcement to everyone. And then when we do the announcement is when we open up the, the, the feature flag. And so, um, and obviously we are also monitoring uh, how people use these new features. And when we build a new feature, is there adoption to this feature? And then we also like constantly consider, okay, should we invest more in this feature uh, or not? You know, those are kind of like, you know, product uh, decisions that we make on a daily basis based on the data that we know how people are using our own product. And our marketing side is full of feature flags. Like if you go to our marketing site, you know, the button text in like, you know, the, 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 the get a demo, uh, that text is actually different for every person. And that is driven by a multi-arm bandit experiment, which is automatically deciding which uh, which text actually yields most number of conversions. And then we'll start to show more and more of the winning variants. So we have like eight different variants uh, that we throw into that system. So yeah, so we use stats pretty extensively. And maybe to uh, close up today's podcast episode, we'll shift gears a bit uh, to to kind of more like on the on the advice side for for our listeners, right? So on my end, uh, I okay, Eldad said it earlier. I have this more academic background, so I'm relatively new to industry. Um, and you've seen all of it, right? Kind of over three decades, like, or well, starting your third decade, uh, two at big tech, now at startups. Like, do you have any advice for aspiring engineers, basically? Yeah, I think um, as a early engineer, so I've always wanted to, um, you know, I always chase technology. So in the beginning, I was like, okay, I want to be, you know, for me, the compiler engineers are like gods. And I was like, oh, I want to be like a compiler engineer. So and I went to like, you know, I was in Microsoft. I worked on compiler technologies. I, I worked on language services, incremental com compilation and stuff like that. Benjamin's so I, uh, upcoming paper is on the uh, query compilation. I'm sorry. Oh, <laughs> that, don't. I haven't told anyone yet. <laughs> oh, we'll cut it out. But we don't cut anything out. So yeah. we'll release it after you release the paper. Sorry, go ahead. Three months. <laughs> Yeah, and I, and I got I and I went and like um, uh, worked on compilers and uh, for a while, and then over time, I kind of like started realizing uh, technical problems actually ladder up to user problems. Okay, what user problems are you solving? And so you kind of like have a view on like, okay, this is what the problems are, and those translate into technical problems, and so you start chasing. Uh, specific user problems that you're interested in solving, so developer problems. Um, and so I worked on like lots of developer frameworks uh, in Windows and such. And then over time, you kind of like start to realize that um, a lot of the user problems after you peel the first couple layers are kind of like about the same. And kind of like you know the technologies that you deal with, the problems that you solve are, are repeated over and over and over. You kind of like start to pattern match and stuff. Um, then it starts to like, okay, there are people that I want to follow. Uh, from You go from technology to use problems to people. You start following people because you kind of like pattern match, like this person um, has done things that um, I want to do. Uh, I want to aspire to be these people. And so like pick those folks and then like, you know, because you don't have to chart your own path. Some of these things have already been done. So follow them, pick good mentors, pick good managers, uh, and learn from them because there's so much to learn from people that came before you. 
Um, and then as you grow, then there's the, an element of like, uh, turn around and pay back. Because just as you grew on the, on the coattails of other great folks, now there are a set of folks that are joining and learning the trade. Uh, turn around and mentor them and coach them, create that followership. I think that's the, the journey of an engineer, uh, uh, you know, in the last, uh, as you grow in your scope, as you grow in your craft. Boom. I love it. It doesn't Same. matter where you work. If you're an engineer and if you love being an engineer and if you actually think about the problems that you're solving as an engineer, there's no limit. And, uh, and Benjamin, I hope I've been mentoring you enough. And if not, I will try harder. Um, because it's, it's, yeah, it's future engineering. What am I supposed to say now about that? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Uh, well, I, I think those were great closing words. Uh, thank you so much, Vijay, for joining us. Uh, this, this was awesome. I think we've all learned a lot of new stuff. Um, yeah. Cool. And well, thanks guys. Thank you, Vijay. Thanks, Lada. Thanks, Benjamin. Thanks for having me on your show. I, I'm looking forward to watching this. Awesome. Absolutely. All right, guys. Take care. Take care. Bye-bye. Take care.